Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. My buddy George Offman on the Windy City Podcast today. We'll talk to George in just a little bit. George and I worked together at WGN Radio. We also worked together briefly at The Score. I don't know if George remembers me when I was at The Score, but I certainly remember George. He was racing in one day and he's taking off his coat and George what's going on Cubs are getting Benito Santiago got to get it ready somehow George had the insight he was talking to someone and he knew the Cubs were about to sign Benito Santiago which I thought was really very exciting for a young producer at that point that who I know the guy who knows the Santiago news and then of course as I just mentioned we worked together at WGN and then George and I Started playing some tennis together. We used to go over to McFetrich, California, and Addison. And then George said, I no longer want to play with you, Carmen, because you're just uh, not that fun to be around. No, I don't know. We just stopped playing. Uh, but uh, we always, it's just one guy in sports radio that I could actually talk tennis with, which, spoiler alert, we don't talk any tennis on uh, on the podcast today. More going through the history of George and sports phone and the score and uh, what he wants to do next and some stories from different people that he covered. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation with Offman. So one weekend of baseball is in the books for Miami Marlins testing positive for the coronavirus. Justin Verlander looks like he's done for the season with an elbow injury. Ronaldo Lopez of the White Sox ends up not making it out of the first inning, felt shoulder tightness uh, before the game, tried to pitch through it. He's done. We're seeing some of the effects, right, of trying to race guys out there in the middle of a pandemic, which I get it. We all want sports, but there is going to be a cost for this, and it's just kind of how big will the cost be. Hopefully, we're not going to see any players get really sick because that would really suck. Uh, But elbow injuries and shoulder injuries that are going to last into next season, that sucks too. But, of course, that could happen in a regular season, so you can't not play because of that. I get it, but they really didn't have a a standard spring training, right? And I think we are starting to see some of the risk and the lack of reward uh, coming through here. But I am enjoying watching it. I hope that we do not see anything in basketball like guys blowing out Achilles, a.k.a. Kevin Durant. I really hope that doesn't happen here, but I'm worried about it because it very well could. As guys, uh, you know, you get back on the court, you want to be your best, you start pushing your body, 
Next thing you know, your body's saying no in a very violent way. Uh, but fingers crossed, we'll get it going here. I have no idea how football's going to do this. Uh, and I think baseball, just the travel coming in here after the first weekend, I mean, who knows what this looks like. White Sox going out on an eight-game trip, Cleveland and Kansas City, and then Milwaukee, then they come home. Feels feels dangerous, but uh, we'll have to see how this whole thing plays out. All right. Before we get to George Offman, I want to play one snippet of an interview I did with Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees. Uh, Judge working with Pepsi. Rare opportunity to get an interview with Aaron and uh, thank the people over at Pepsi and his PR team for hitting us up here at the Windy City and Fan Sided. Really interesting stuff from Aaron Judge on what his role is in the social injustice conversation. And I'm thinking back to Charles Barkley and his famous commercial where he says, I'm not a role model. Yeah, uh, Aaron Judge, that is not his mindset at all. Is this uh, comfortable to step into for you, Aaron? And I guess it's okay either way, comfortable or uncomfortable, doesn't really matter. But like, how, how does it feel to you to be sort of, you know, at least, you know, in the conversation and doing things. It's a responsibility, Mark, you know, yeah. more than more than anything, you know, just with the platform I have, you know, especially playing professional baseball and a lot of the fans that I have around the U.S. and world, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a responsibility, you know, people, you know, you get in, when you become a professional athlete, you know, some people say, I'm not a role model, I'm not this, well, well, you are, you know, you got a lot of young fans that look up to you and, you know, that, that's who you really, that's who you're really doing this all for. You know, it's younger fans, younger generation, you know, coming behind us that hopefully they have a better, better future and, and, and better life than us. Your generation, Aaron, has taken that on. Uh, and I'm not trying to say anything bad about anyone. You know, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, these guys have had, um, you know, very powerful conversations in the past. But I think with the platforms that are available on social media today, there's a way for you guys to get your message out more. And it's almost becoming, as you just said, a responsibility. I, I'm taking that you maybe get inspired by things like LeBron James or anyone that you could pick who stepped into the conversation. Does that, that, does that sound true, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. You know, definitely guys like LeBron um, have been a big part of this. And then, like you said, even going back to Muhammad Ali and a lot of other guys that uh, took a stand, you know, on, on different things in this world. But I think the big thing now is just, like you said, having, you know, social media and different outlets to connect. And when we're able to connect, that's a way we were able to stand unified. You know, I think in the past when, you know, someone does something, well, if I don't have their number or a way to reach out to them and kind of tar- you know, say, hey, how can I help? How can I reach out? You know, and I think just having that availability right now has been, has been uh, our biggest key. You can hear the rest of that interview if you want uh, on the Yanks Go Yard podcast, which Fansite is just starting up. Yanks Go Yard. If you want to follow Aaron Judge and the conversation over there. But I want to get to my guy, George Offman, my tennis buddy, my radio buddy. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Georgie right here. Radio legend, George Offman, right now. I don't want to put him on too big of a pedestal, but kind of a hero of mine. Uh, George Offman is is with us today. And uh, Georgie, thank you for doing this, by the way. My pleasure, Carm. What's happening? Well... You know you're you, you're in a transition in life, so I figured we would catch up here. You're, I feel like you were 
at least available to, to come on to Windy City. You want to continue this radio career, right, George, or something Something in the broadcasting world? I saw you tweeting out, I am not done. There is more George Hoffman to give. Well, yeah, I'm not done. I'm not in a transition period where I'm going to my next life. I mean, <laughs> I'm still... I'm still alive and vibrant, and uh, radio business is very difficult. I mean, as you well know, it's you know it is a it's a somewhat shrinking industry, and if you add the COVID nineteen, it's even more difficult. And particularly for what I have done for my living, which is to be a sports reporter and anchor. And those are going by the wayside. I, I designated myself the dinosaur in a dinosaur industry. And it's kind of like, I don't know, what comes around goes around, because when I first started, this was, this was the, the industry you wanted to be in. This is If you wanted to be a news guy, a sports news guy, this is where you wanted to be. Um, this is, you know, before talk radio uh, came into vogue. So I flourished during that time. And was hoping that I would spend the rest of my career uh, at WBBM. That did not happen. But that doesn't mean that another door to another um, place can't open. So obviously I keep my options open. But, you know, it's uh, I definitely am not done. I'm too young. I'm way too young to be done. Yeah, I think you got. I've got you on the twenty-three years left in the business plan here, George. <laughs> if that's the case, I'll be doing it with false teeth. That's okay. That's a. You, I, I don't think you'd be the first, although I'm not exactly sure if that's true. Uh, okay, so that's interesting what you're saying about your role in the business or that job in the business, because a lot of people, like I look at myself, the way that you know, I'm in my mid-thirties. I'm producing a WGN. I'm really wanting to get on the air. I'm, I'm getting some opportunities. But I took a producing job that included updates with the opportunity to host some to move to Kansas City and to get myself on the air full time. That would At least I'd be doing updates. But I don't – and this is going to make me, I don't know, not look great for a second. But it wasn't like I was like dying to do updates and put mm-hmm. the, the level of pride that – I hear in a George Hoffman update for the the first time I ever heard you to the last time. Like you actually put serious scripting effort and creativity that you really don't see people doing nowadays or not even nowadays for, I'd say for a long time now, George, is that, does that bug you that like you're just, you're on the high end of actually putting the work and the creativity and, and it, and, 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 and providing a good listen for people when you're doing it. Well, I mean, I, I kind of treated each one like an art form, and it's just kind of the way it was when I was in college. I started writing that way then um, and polished as I went along, you know, in a different way because I spent 20 years writing uh, stories for National Public Radio, as all things considered, or rather uh, at the morning edition. And so, you know, that, that helped polish some writing. But, yeah, most people who were doing or getting into the industry now, say, in the the 90s or 2000s, no, they didn't want to do what I did. But it is what I did, and I made a career out of it. You know, there was some talk when I was working at The Score, um, and I did a lot of freelancing, obviously, for the first 13 years of my career after I left Sportsville, and I was just a full-time freelance. So, And I did a lot of writing then. But... Um, 
I, I just felt like if you're going to inform the public, I'd like to do that in a creative style um, in, in which you're just not robotic and here's a score and here's this story. Um, the idea, and I think uh, Jeff Joniak said it best when he was always talking about tell me a story, which you can do in the parameters of a two-minute sportscast or even less in the parameters of a 30-second uh, report or what have you, you can tell a story. And that's right. Tell me a story. Only I wanted to create the story. And I created the story with sound. And I learned a lot of that uh, through a, a fellow named Wynn Elliott, who is a national sportscaster for CBS Radio back in my freelance days in the early and mid-'80s. He was a wonderful old gentleman uh, with a really unique style to write and write around sound bites. And I really learned a lot from that guy and just said, listen, this is, this is my calling card. I don't want to be a boring update guy. I want to be somebody that said, Hey, that was interesting. And I liked the way that was written. So, I mean, it's, it's just a, like I say, Carm, it's a style that I developed well over 40 years ago. And it just, you know, it got me to hear so let me rewind back here because I, I I guess I'm missing some part of your chrono, chrono, chronology. Is that the chronology? Word? Good job. There we I go. knew you'd get it. Thank you very much. <laughs> so was your first gig sports phone, George? Yes, my first professional gig in Chicago uh, was sports phone. Obviously, I was working uh, down at Southern Illinois University and pretty much paid fairly early on in my uh, collegiate. Uh, radio and television career there. Yeah, sports phone was something that I got lucky to jump aboard six weeks after they got, they started in Chicago. The New York version began in 1976, and the Chicago version began in 1977. And uh, I was brought in by uh, Dick Gonski, who once called the Bulls games back in the 70s. And I I joined them, and that uh, that was my first first night was day was Christmas Eve, and I worked with Fred Hubner. So it'll show you Fred is still vibrant at ESPN Radio, um, and part of the staff included Ron Gleason, my ex boss, Les Grobstein, who is still doing the overnights Amazing. at the Score. I mean that. That was part of our studio, and everybody is still working 42 and a half years later. I'm, that's great. But it was a stepping stone for so many people. I can't even begin to even think from David Schuster to Lou Canellas to Jeff Joniak. There are many, many more who I'm missing. Um, and in New York, one of those guys was Gary Cohen, the voice of the New York Mets. So it was a great stepping stone. It just so happened I got very bored, and I started freelancing, and um, – and from there, I spent 13 years being on my own and freelancing when there were so many radio networks in which you can make a buck. It's like somebody turned me on to that, and I said, oh, okay, let me try. Well, I, I gained a very fast reputation for being good at what I did, and I was yeah, – let me tell you, I was living a life. I was single <laughs> in right. my 20s and early 30s and being my own boss and keeping my own hours, and it's – it's a life I would never exchange for anything. 
So I'm just trying to picture what sports phone looked like here and how much money y'all were making doing. And I would look, you're saying seven, you were, it was 1977. So I was four years old and, <laughs> and I don't remember the first time I ever called, but I do remember the number nine, seven, six, one, three, one, three. And then you, that was one of the numbers. And, yeah. Right. And, then, and then you added two, five, two, five. Uh, I don't right. And, and I don't remember anything past that, but I would, you know, we didn't have cable. I wanted to know the Bulls score or how many I, – I, I feel like I was still calling sports phone when Michael was still there. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I was just calling during the Reggie Theus era. But, uh, I mean, what what did it look like? How many people were in there? And, and how often did – you had to do it every 10 minutes? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. We were in the Hancock building. I, if I remember correctly, we were on the 31st floor of the Hancock building. Um, kind of sparse studios with three black and white televisions – and uh, Les Grobstein eating a Geno's pizza every day and watching, <laughs> and watching the Three Stooges on one of them. It was just it, – it, it, it was comical, okay? Every day you walked in, that was the case, you know, whether you're doing a day shift or a night shift. Yes, you would, you would get, um, I think, one full straight hour in which you did an update every 10 minutes. Then you'd have an hour off as you were doing other things, gathering stuff. Um, and, you know, that was aimed for the, the gambler. It was all about the gambler. That's how the gambler got the up-to-date stuff. It was, it was all fashioned for the gambler. Um, and we were getting a lot. I mean, people were spending a lot of money calling us. You know, that I'd get people later on telling me that their parents would punish them, you know, for all the money they spent. Rick Hahn, the general manager of the White Sox, said, I used to dial up and get Georgie on sports phone. And he said, Rick, you're showing your age. Uh, it was funny. It, uh, but, yeah, you did that uh, along with a story. And, you know, we covered games. We actually covered games. So that we actually did short reports. They would be like 20-second reports on these updates that you would go into a booth, um, you would uh, hopefully do it in one take. You'd have to do it in 59 seconds. You press the pound button, and there it was. Bingo. Now, remember, heck, I'm trying to remember, how do we get our scores? So we must have had a wire machine, the, either the AP or the UPI wire machine, because there was no Internet. So that's the only way that we got our scores. They weren't as instantaneous as you think they are today. So things were a little bit behind back then, but that was, that was then. Um, I, how much was I paid? I have no idea. I can't remember. <laughs> it it wasn't. Let me put it this way. It wasn't a lot. I mean, my first full-time on-air <laughs> radio gig, WLBK 1360 AM DeKalb, and I'll never forget what it paid. Eighteen five, and you got fifty bucks a game for play-by-play for high school football and basketball and Kishwaukee Junior College. Uh, was it? I mean, was it even a full-time job? Did they did they do it like that? Was it a full-time job? I don't know why I have these questions, George, but it just sports it, phone was. Uh, I, I I I don't recall. I don't know. You, but you, I wasn't you don't have a paid <laughs> nearly that money. I'm, might have been ten thousand for a year, so yeah, I, I don't. I honestly don't know what we were paid. We were paid by the hour. There was no health insurance, nothing like that. So, um, but I'm very vague on that. Other than I can still picture a little bit of the studio, which was like I said, it was a small 
a small office building with a small booth that you would go into. That was about the extent of what I remember. Do you remember the first game you covered or a game that you covered earlier in a career that, that stood out for either asking some question where you got yelled at or, I don't know, meeting an, a, a hero of yours? Well, I mean, I, I if you go back to days in Carbondale, I covered Bobby Orr's first game with the Blackhawks. Wow. Which was in St. Louis. And so we went down for that game. Um, to cover the game, uh, the early going, the early going. I, you know, I was never afraid to ask questions. Uh, that's and, and and as I moved along, I there were certain people in our industry who I greatly admired for asking tough questions. People like Joe Mushel, the late Joe Mushel, who was the AP, the head of AP Sports here for decades and a, a tough guy, but a nice guy, and a tough questioner. And uh, Brad Palmer, who was the you know, sports director at WBBM Radio in the early days, actually covered, he covered the 1969 Cubs, and then, of course, went to Channel 7 for a number of years. Really tough, sometimes annoying questioners. And I learned, don't be afraid to ask a question. Because, you know, sometimes you're going to ask a dumb question. But... You know, sometimes you're going to get a dumb answer, too. I always thought that the best way to ask a question is ask a question to get the most desirable answer. That's the way I approached it. I still do. If you're looking for the right answer, you've got to ask the question a certain way. But, I mean, there were so many events in the early going. I traveled as a freelance to DuCoin, Illinois, which is just 20 miles away from southern Illinois, where they were holding the Hambletonian, which was the most prestigious harness race in America. It's like the Kentucky Derby of harness racing. And it was there until 1980 when it moved to the Meadowlands, where it's still being run. And I would go down to cover it as a freelance uh, for the couple of years until it left, and, you know, you'd, you'd, I'd make a decent amount of money going, traveling 300 miles to do it. But remembered enjoying the, the idea that I could go wherever I want to cover a game, and that's exactly what I did. Um, I covered the Milwaukee market when the Brewers were really a good team, Harvey, Harvey's Wallbangers back in the late 70s and early 80s when it went to the World Series in 1982. Um, and, you know, I, I, I hopped a, did I hop a plane. I forget if I planed or drove to Detroit to watch uh, Phil Esposito break the scoring record. Or wait, yeah, yeah, the scoring record. Uh, and, 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 you know, other events that were out of town. Lou Brock's 3,000th hit, um, which happened to be in St. Louis as a freelance. I traveled down to cover that. And that's why I really got a kick out of doing that. You're young. You're not attached you have a car, you have equipment, you have a lot of clients, people who count on you, and you say, look, I'm going to travel here, and I count up all right, how much it's going to cost for me to, 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 to get down there and to uh, take a hotel room, and I would do that. Or sometimes just travel back that next night, which, was, you know, for Milwaukee wasn't so hard. So I love that part. That was, that's, that was the freedom of, of being able to do whatever you want, when you want, but responsible enough to realize you had your own business 
and you were a professional, and you know, which is the way I approached it from the very first time I walked into a newsroom. Just, you know, act like a pro, be a pro. And here we are, 42 and a half years later. I'm just, I'm thinking about who else was doing what you were doing at that time. Like, was Les on the road with you there? Was David Schuster? No, Les did. Les was doing freelance, but I was basically kind of honing in and creating many more clients. Uh, David eventually joined me to kind of back me up while he was working at Sports Phone and then Connor Communication, which was another phone sports operation. And uh, but, but no, basically it was mostly me and a little bit of Wes and a little bit of David. And there were a lot of guys like me around the country, guys who generally – were freelance, um, and that was their that was their main job. In some cases, their only job. But for me, it was a job that could pay me more than well enough to live. So uh, yeah, I was basically the guy in Chicago with, you know, uh, clients in Canada, in London, um, you know, in, in this country, and you. Some days were lean. You know, if the teams were bad, things were lean. But if the teams were good, that's where you can make a buck. And so right after Sports Phone began, I was still freelancing when Michael Jordan was really hitting it big. I mean, I, Michael was a bonanza for any of us doing this as a business. You know, he, he was like, and every night we want to hear about Michael Jordan. And that was, you know, that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But um, I did that freelancing for about 20, until, until, 19, until 2000. You know, I joined the score in 1992, but I did I did freelancing for 20 years. Okay, let me rewind back then before you get. Let's to, rewind. Last, I, I'm enjoying this, George. I, <laughs> I I hope you are too. Thank for thank you for checking out the Windy City with uh, George Hoffman today. Uh, I did, Red Motlow gave you your start on the radio here. Is that right? He's a yes. Okay, when when was that? Red was for people who don't know. I mean, Red Motlow was a Hall of Fame radio journalist. And one of the very first to carry a microphone as a sports journalist in this city. It was himself and uh, Brad Palmer. Uh, Red came from Minnesota and carved a niche for himself um, at WCFL and then WFYR. And I was bugging Red because we, you know, we became pretty good friends. And I'd bug him, you know, Red, let me take over for you when you're on vacation. Uh, yeah, they don't want you. They don't want you. Oh, wait a second. <clears throat> they want you. And in 19, I want to say 88, he let me do his mornings four times a year. And the people at the station loved it. I had a, I had a blast doing it because then I could really write and let things out. And I had a lot of fun with it. And eventually, because of that, um, I was able to get a gig at what was then the competitor for WBBM, WMAQ All News 67, which was a, the Westinghouse All News radio station. And so it was competition for WBBM. And I worked there with people like with Ron Gleason, Steve Olkin, you know, the guy named Tom Green, and flourished and, and loved that and was freelance. I was working very, very hard back then, you know, almost day and night covering games and being on the air. Um, and that eventually led to be being hired at uh, at the score when it uh, first began in 1992. 
All right, so let's go there. It's 92. They're starting to score. And were you one of the original hires, George? Were you, were you the first crew in? No, no, no. I was the last hire, believe okay. it or not. Um, I was hired on my birthday, which was December 28th. They started January 2nd. Um, and the person hired right before me was this guy. You may have heard of him. His name is Mike Greenberg. Um, <laughs> so he and, and, and Greeny was my intern at MAQ All News. I think he's gone on to do fairly good things and, and, and has made a great name for himself. He's a very, very bright individual. But, no, I was the, the last hire, and then they, we went on the air, and I was their principal reporter and eventually their anchor. And, I mean, immediately, as we went on the air, sent to spring training um, you know, in in, uh, in February of 1992, with a brick phone. For people don't who don't know what a brick phone is, it's like the original cell phones, only they were like uh, like ten times the size, and they were, you know, you could never lose it because it was too big, very cumbersome. <laughs> but that's what we used back then, 20, 28 and a half years ago, and. Um, you know, I was there with a very, very interesting group of people. Um, I mean, I knew Dan Jiggetts and I knew Tom Scherer, but I never heard of a guy named Mike North. I knew Terry Bores. I knew Dan McNeil. And nobody knew Mike, but we all knew Mike real quickly. Um, and he developed a, a certain, obviously, a style that was liked and disliked. But eventually, people started to listen to the radio station, and you know, then we we went to 1160 to to, to get on at night, uh, you know, because it was just a daytime station. So when we came out in the winter, we would start at 7:30 in the morning and go off at 4:30 in the afternoon, you know, and in the uh, summertime it would be 6:30 in the morning and go off at 8:30 at night. I mean, it was a kind of tough way of, you know. Living is a in the world of sports that way, but eventually there was the 1160, and then they went to um, 670. It was 24 hours a day, and obviously they, you know, it has flourished. You know, the the scorer has done a a really good job over the course of that time, developing a a pretty pretty big audience. So that's where you really got known, George. I mean, at least in, in to me, my face my face was on milk cartons, <laughs> tree stumps. <laughs> That's how I got known. I mean, I'm just thinking back, and there's been you know a lot of great radio shows in this town, but when Jiggets and North really had it going, and you were doing the updates there, oh my gosh! I mean, I I would put that show at the top for for a period of time when they really had it cooking. It was an unbelievable listen from ten to two. Would you agree? It was different, that's <laughs> to say the least, and you know they. I had a tiny room to work in. I remember it. We shared an office, and then it was eventually, you know, a, a tiny closet to edit your tape. Uh, and then you would, you know, go on the air. Sometimes you would walk into the studio. The studio was tiny. And, you know, there's Jigs, who took up a lot of that studio in, in North. And, you know, they would grill you and tease you and whatever. But, you know, it's I, I managed to to play the second banana roll there because you had to very easily. That's just the it was the nature of the beast. Um, but as you went along, um, they gave me, 
you know, some assignments to do some talk. And then eventually we came up with the idea of the hit and run baseball show, which is still going on today. I think we debuted that in 2005 or I started doing a baseball show in 2004 and in 2005, you know, we, we put the hit and run on myself and Jesse Rogers and it's still going strong, which I think is really, really good. And the, and the name is still there, but I had a, I had a great time working there. Yeah, I would also submit that the Hit and Run show, the version that you started along with Jesse was also when that show was at its peak, and that's no disrespect to Barry or Matt or anyone, but there was a, there was a certain chemistry with you and Jesse that was, you didn't know what was going to happen next. There was You guys liked each other so and mm-hmm. knew each other so you could play at each other, and uh, you would get annoyed with him. It, it was very entertaining, George. <laughs> Well, Jesse was first of all. Jesse was great, and he still is. It's a, he's a, just a he's a, a great person, um, fun to be around, and he has really established himself as a, a, a premier uh, now, you know, baseball writer. Good for him. Um, but yeah, we wanted to make the show different. We there was another baseball show, and and we wanted the show to have a format that would be entertaining and fun and that was the approach let's let's do it yeah sometimes i'd be there you know the show starts at 10 i think it started at 10 or 9 well, i forgot what nine o'clock and i'd be there like at seven forty-five. and jesse would walk into a quarter to nine and jesse would be wearing his sunglasses says jess where were you are you ready for the show and he'd be ready for the show <laughs> and we do it and so and let me tell you something when jesse would get mad his whole head would get red <laughs> And it it actually played well on the show. We we had fun. It was a it was really a fun show to do. It, it it did. And now you're making me think of preparation. In my you know the the limited time that I spent at the score interning and then uh, producing for about a year. That was when well originally I was an intern for, with Sharon Memolo and Rick Geezer was producing the show and Ed sure. Preach and whatnot. And then they switched over to the Bear and the Bull. And I would be that's Norm Van Leer and Doug Buffone, yeah, right, right. And so I would be producing less on the overnight, and Doug Buffone would sashay in at three thirty in the morning to do, you know, to start his prep. And I'm like, this guy's unbelievable. Yeah. And and then Norm would show up at five fifty seven. Well, that was par for Norm. Doug Doug did his homework. Doug was that's the way Doug was. You know, he he really, really, really worked hard. You know, that and he had just this, you know, majestic personality. He's just the – this is a football player, okay? Rugged, tough guy who is the opposite of that off the air and not just a genuinely nice guy, a genuinely wonderful person. Uh, I mean, we did some appearances together. I, I, I just laughed my head off. What a what a what a joy it it was to work with him and to know him and to understand him. And uh, you know, there, there are not many Doug Buffons that come around, but I was very very lucky to be part of that. Yeah, and uh, I doubt Ed Obradovich is listening to this podcast, but uh, <laughs> that's that's also one of those once in a lifetime pairings. It's you know it's you get Stephen Gary and that's you know you can't you can't duplicate it and you can't duplicate you know yeah. uh, Buffon and Obradovich you couldn't you couldn't try 
to duplicate it. You can try to come up with a different combination, but you'll never duplicate something like that. You can't. It was it was one of a kind. There's there's no doubt. Yeah. Um, so okay, let let's. You're at the score for how long, George? Before they before you decide to go on this Webio venture? Oh, God. I know you didn't want me to bring it up, but it's, it's, it's part well, of... Well, listen, it is part of history. It was, it was yes. um, Mike's idea, along with uh, a person who I will mention in a moment, of doing an Internet radio sportscast. Now, very few places could get internet radio and very few cars had internet radio so we weren't, we weren't broadcasting to many people but mike felt it was at the ground floor of something and so um you know a lot of people wanted to join you know I, but when mike brought me in he said if you don't do this i got a host of other people who i've interviewed and and he did i mean i'm not going to mention their names but there's still people working in the industry who wanted to be part of that and so we joined up, and it was a great party. And um, But as we were going along, and I'm having the time of my life because they are sending me to follow the Blackhawks. This is the year before they won the Cup. So I am in Calgary, Vancouver, and Detroit covering the Blackhawks. This is just great. And we're off the air like at 6 o'clock in the evening. So I have my evenings to myself. So that's great. But when one day the BlackBerry wasn't working, and then suddenly I was told that the the bill hadn't been paid, you know, a red light came on. But then there was more, and suddenly other bills weren't being paid. And we found out that the guy who had supposedly funded this did so on a Ponzi scheme. And it wasn't the first time this guy had been arrested for it. And he had a company, all fake, all run on a Ponzi scheme. The money ran out. So did we. And eventually that person was given a long jail sentence. But in June of 2009, we're all out of work. I mean, 10 weeks after we go on the air, we're out of work. And scrambling, and it's like, you know, how did we get involved with something like this? How did not anyone know? How could anybody not know? Some people did know. Some people knew, but some people wouldn't say. And that was very shameful of those people not to ever say, oh, by the way, you better watch out what you're joining. Bottom line is, you know, you're scrambling for work, and a person that you know very well, Dave Ennett at WGN Radio, um eventually told me in July I you know if you want to come in and do some some freelance work I I've got some spots for you on the air I said great at that point I had developed what I thought was laryngitis but it wasn't laryngitis I had a paralyzed vocal cord and for about 4 months could not speak uh was 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 seeing someone for it um a, you know professional group that deals with that and it was paralyzing in another way, not to be able to have the most important aspect of what you do, your voice. But eventually I had a procedure done, and in November, Dave Ennett was still offering me the job. Imagine the job was still there. And so I was doing a little talk with uh, Jim Memolo and stuff, and there was um, 
you know, I, I forgot his his first name, Athene. He was the program director there. Kevin. Not a well-liked person in the industry. Um, kind of despised, but I got along well with him, and he gave me a lot of work, um, which was great. And then on June 9th, I believe, of 2010, um, I was approached and asked, by the way, do you want to travel to Philadelphia to cover game six of the Stanley Cup finals? <laughs> it took me the grand total of one second to say, let me think about it, yes. And here I was on a plane the next morning as part of the crew to cover that game, that historic game in which Patrick Kane scored the mystery goal. And 30 seconds later, I am sitting on the Blackhawks bench waiting to go on the ice to interview players where there's a Stanley Cup being in front of my face. It was just absolutely surreal that that was going on. Uh, I wasn't intimidated by it, but you know, when you think back about it, it's just unbelievable. And so, <clears throat> thankfully, that, along with a move that was made by now Mark Grody, who was working both the score and WBBM to take a full-time job with uh, with the score, that I was able to, two months later, join WBBM. And so, some things happen for a reason. Some things happen because you make them happen. But I was lucky at my age then, of 55, to land that job at WBBM. You're just making me think about just the fortune of the business. Uh, oh, yeah. And, or the misfortune uh, of the business, it's, too. It's it's all both, right? It's, it depends on the day. But they, uh, you know, in 2016, when the Cubs won the World Series, if WGN had not lost the Cubs, there's no way that uh, Todd Manley would have been saying, Carm, you, we want you to be in Cleveland for game six and seven. And, yep. and we were doing Cubs post-game shows. That would not have been me. It, you know, it would have been David Kaplan or whoever would have, it would have been, uh, you know, we, if we had the club. But I got to do all that. And, and you know, the Chicago were – were you in Cleveland, George? I was not in Cleveland, uh, but I covered the games at Wrigley Field. Yeah. So just quick story, and this is, by the way, this podcast is about George Offman, but I think you'll enjoy the story. <laughs> the the, the – uh, the line, you know, I stayed in the press box for the the entire game seven. I mean, everybody went down before the before Chapman gave it up. They're all, you know, they're all getting in line, but I I stayed up top because I wanted to watch the game and I, I you know I figure it out. I get down there, and you know, the entire Chicago media is waiting to get in the Cubs clubhouse to you know three miles down. I'm like, well, this is not the this is not going to be the best way to do this. Let me see if I can weasel my way in some other way. And so I ended up walking over to the Indians clubhouse and they open it up. And so now everybody's walking in to go interview the losing Indians. And I just walked right out onto the field. So all the Chicago media is still waiting in line. They haven't opened it. I'm on the field. Very smart, Mark. It, Very smart. It, it was genius, right? And, <laughs> and and the only people there was me and John Cusack and, and Bill Murray. I'm like, can I get one player? I like this. Was, I just did the ninja move of all time, but nobody was out there. So it didn't really pay off. But, I mean, I'm standing there looking at, you know, 10,000 Cup fans. The Cubs just won the World Series. They came back from three to one down. I mean, for somebody who grew up in the city like you did, George, to think about, you got to see three Stanley Cups. The Cubs won the World Series. The White Sox won the World Series. Michael Jordan, uh, and you know, I guess we could still say the '85 Bears, although that's getting a little bit. Uh... Yeah, but but you know, that reminds me of a story. It's really interesting when you say that. Yeah, I was in Houston for the for the White Sox. 
But in 1980, uh, I was called upon by one of my clients, UPI, can I cover the final four in Indianapolis because their stringer was sick? I said, oh, hell yeah. Are you kidding? A final four? So this is the old Market Square Arena, and that was UCLA and Louisville, uh, UCLA coached by Larry Brown, um, and Louisville coached by Denny Crum, and then it was Purdue and Iowa, two Big Ten teams. Well, it's the championship game, and we were seated way up on top, but I started to move down as the game began to, you know, the, the clock is ticking. Things were very different back then. When the game ended, Denny Crum, after celebrating, is just standing there, and I am, I am on the floor. How the hell could I possibly have gotten on the floor? You could never do that today or the last 25 years. Well, there I was. I got a quick three-question you know, interview with Denny Crum. What does it feel like to win, blah, blah, blah. Raced into the uh, interview room, called my clients, sent them the sound. And never have that happen again. Never. But you take advantage of circumstances and you see, oh, wait a second. If I can do this, go ahead. And that's exactly what you did in Cleveland. You managed to beat the system. Fairly, I might add, but you beat the system. And so I, I just remember that as one of those freak, it ain't happening again in your lifetime, but you got away with it. Yep, yep. Uh, who, uh, I'm just thinking now, George, as you go back, uh, you know, looking at favorite people that you had to cover or tussled with or, or really loved talking to, who comes to mind? Uh, Ozzy Gian. <laughs> I love Ozzie. How could Ozzie Gian not come to mind? So definitely the most unique person and in interview we ever had because there was no holes barred, and he had to learn not to swear during the interviews. But away from that, I mean, it was Blue City, but funny as hell. And Ozzie is a pretty smart manager, too. He's, he was a crafty guy. But he was that way when he was a player. He was loud, but you just never envisioned him as being the manager. I remember when Kenny Williams hired him. I looked over at Ozzy and I pointed to him. He, he knew who I was. And I looked at him going, you? They hired you? <laughs> what the hell? And a year later, the White Sox win 99 games in the World Series. Um, so he was, he was incredible to talk to. Joe Madden was a, a joy um, to speak to because he loved talking. You know, Joe yep. liked talking, and people who like talking are, generally speaking, a lot of fun to deal with. Uh, Jerry Sloan, when he was the coach of the Bulls, was was an interesting um, interview. Uh, Pete Rose, uh, Dave Winfield, Tony Gwynn, great, great interviews. You could just walk up to them then, turn on a microphone and a recorder and let them talk. And they would talk and talk and talk. But if you had good subject matter, they were great. Loved doing that. There was always, you know, interesting people who, uh, you know, gave you the, the type of interview that you wanted to. And then there were shy people who came out of the woodwork. People like Steve Larmer who, and, and Doug Wilson. These are, the, you know, the, the, the Doug recently a Hall of Famer as the general manager of the San Jose Sharks. You know, part of the early Blackhawks in the 1980s when, you know, Dennis Savard came and, you know, that team was just spectacular to cover. 
I mean, Steve wouldn't say word one, but as time went on, not only did he say word one, he became the player rep, you know, and he had to talk. And and you watched how some of these guys who wouldn't say a word would talk. Tim Anderson is one of those guys now. Very, very, very shy in the early going. But he's realized what he's become. He's become a team leader, and so he talks more. And I always liked watching the progression of these younger players who didn't really know how to talk, learn how to talk in half very shy at the beginning not so shy now he's smart learned how to talk and so that's that's kind of a fun aspect of it there are lousy interviews too they're always you know bad guys herman franks uh, one of the first managers that, uh, that i dealt with with the cubs back in the late 70s and they had a team of terrible guys dave kingman oh gosh what, what an awful person bill buckner they had a, they had a team full of really bad guys <laughs> Good players, but bad guys. Um, you know, this is my, that's like one of my first years covering baseball. I've, I've said that the worst locker room I ever covered was the first locker room I ever covered, and that was the 1979 Cubs. Just just an atrocious group of people. Jerry Martin, another one. You know, real. And then there were a few really nice guys like Barry Foote, uh, you know, we spoke to last year. That was just, you know, amazingly difficult to deal with that. And that was good because you learned a lot about adversity and how to get by. And, you know, that, that's, oh, my gosh, that was, that's a long time ago, but it still ranks as the worst locker room I ever had to deal with. I didn't know that Billy Buck was surly like that. He's tough. He was very surly. He didn't want to be there. He was traded by the Dodgers, you know, to the Cubs. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the Dodgers were a hell of a team. And, you know, suddenly Bill Buckner's there. Bobby Mercer, another very surly guy, another guy who, yeah, traded by the Yankees, wound up with the Cubs. You think he wanted to be there? Of course he didn't want to be there. So he had a lot of guys who just didn't want to be there. But, you know, Billy Buck turned into a, a terrific player. Um, you know, but, but as far as interviews go, a very, very surly group of players. Minus one guy, Mike Kruko, who is now the voice, one of the voices of the San Francisco Giants. We all turned to Mike. Unfortunately, he was a pitcher, so he only pitched once every five days or four days back then, and he was a great interview. Other than that, the Cubs had very, very few people to interview, including the manager. Yeah. I, I, I'm just trying to think, like, over my time period, of, like, I guess the first clubhouse that I was around was, I, I want to say, 97, and they had Doug Glanville, who was, a, you know, the nicest yeah. guy ever. Yep. But, but it, was, it was much different even then. That the '98 Cubs, you had Mark Grace, who yep. rarely was clothed after a game. You, you had <laughs> smoking a cigarette and talking to you, right? Smoking a cigarette. Rod Beck, the same thing. Jeff yep. Blauser, Matt Karchner, they're all they're all drinking and smoking at their locker. You would never <laughs> see that now. That no. does not happen. No. And, no. <laughs> and they had and they had you know Jim Riggleman, who's who. Um, is still my favorite manager because Love. back in the day, the old Wrigley Field clubhouse, the manager's office was um, up a flight of stairs and accessible. His was so that you can sometimes knock on the door and Jim was there and said, Jim, got to talk a little baseball strategy with you. He'd open the door and close the door and you could talk to him. And he was great. And to this day, we still, we still talk. One of the nicest guys and really a, a, a somewhat underrated manager. He just wound up with a lot of bad teams, and then unfortunately when he wound up with a good team in Washington, he made a 
a real bad mistake for his career. Sad to see that he's not managing now. He still could manage if he if he if he could. But I remember those. I was there was a locker room full of interesting people, including Sammy Sosa. Yep. And to your Riggleman point, I that was the first manager that I was ever around, and he was the greatest. You could he would not big time anyone. Nope. You, he would give you an answer on whatever you asked. I remember him having an exchange with George Castle, where, <laughs> where he. George asked him, like, well, how come you didn't uh, – well, why would you use this reliever there? And then he just looks at him and he's like, well, what would you do? And he's like, well, you could have used X, Y, Z. He's like, why would you put – a lefty against a righty? Like, they're right. – you know, they're having an actual conversation versus – Nowadays, no manager would allow that to happen right. again. You know. it, it just would, – it, it wouldn't be. No. So, all right, let's let's wrap up with this, George, and I really appreciate the time today. It's 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 awesome to be with you and I'm looking forward to what whatever is next for you, George. I, I'm I'm expecting big things here and I and I know you're you're dominating on the tennis court these days as well. So, because I stopped. can't beat you though. You're you're younger, faster, and better. I, I'm I'm on my game right now too, George. Good. I, 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 I thank you. I, I I'm I'm very proud of what the pandemic has been good to me in that way. A lot more tennis. <laughs> uh, so, if you could like when you when you think about your career from like a 50,000 feet view for just a second like is there any particular highlight I mean and maybe maybe it's the Blackhawks one that you already named but does anything else pop in as we kind of wrap on up here that you that you think of like I can't believe that young George often where'd you grow up again by the way you were on like Albany Park or something yeah no I grew up uh I grew up in the city I've lived in the city my entire life with the exception of being at Carbondale I grew up in Albany Park uh, you know, the son of two immigrants who fled World War II Europe and two brothers who were also born in Europe. So I was the only one born here. So I grew up there, but i that's where my career began. Uh, we would play, we'd sometimes get 20 guys to play baseball, rubber ball, rubber ball in uh, at Hibbard Elementary School, which basically had a large gravel, what we call the campus, and two big backstops and we'd play baseball and I would be Jack Brickhouse. I would be the announcer. I would play, but I would announce like the game from second base. And then I would do the pregame and postgame interviews in a soda can. <laughs> and I was eight and a half years old Are and I knew then exactly what I wanted to do. So no, I grew up there. You know, when I think of um, highlights, one that always seems to, to drop in first was covering the Cubs in 2003 Game five in Atlanta. I had been there for the other games, and that was Yom Kippur, which was the holiest Jewish Jewish holiday. And when they asked me, "Do I want to cover Game five? I said, "Of course I do." Sorry, I am going to cover the game. Well, that game <clears throat> was so revealing in that it was the largest crowd in Braves history, Boston, Milwaukee, Atlanta. There were 54,000 people and at least at least 30,000 if not more were Cubs fans. Yep. It was, it was unbelievable. You're sitting in the press box an hour before the game and you're hearing these loud chants, let's go Cubs. And I got out of my seat, went over to the to the main press box, just saw all these Cubs fans and it was it was unbelievable. And then they won and the post game, which included Kerry Wood spraying champagne on fans in the stands. We're in Atlanta, mind you, not Wrigley Field, Atlanta. And um, 
I then did something that I can admit now that was illegal, but I just didn't think about it. Um, I'm one of the very first people, I think, that has ever done this before. But I used my cell phone to not only go live, but to go live in the clubhouse and hold it up as opposed to a microphone for the interviews. Now, I, I, I didn't realize, of course, that was being done live on WGN radio. And nobody caught me doing it. But then again, I didn't think about it until afterwards going, oh, man, I was on I was on for 18 and a half minutes with Jay Hood back at the score live from the clubhouse with my cell phone. And I did that. David, and it was great. David, it's still hard on you, George. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. They can't get me now. It's after <laughs> the fact. Um, but then I proceeded to do that again in 2005 when the White Sox won the World Series on the field. And I had, you know, two phones, uh, and I would be using one to tell them on the air, hey, I've got this guy, I'm just going to put my cell phone up. And I did, and I would, they'd capture the interviews live as they were taking place on the field. And that was an extraordinary experience. And I'd like to think that back then I was one of the very first people to come up with that concept of just doing it live then. Um, so I remember those particular occasions and one last one which was also Wrigley Field when they won the pennant so we're in the same situation um, 2016 we're waiting to get onto the field when I got on the field Carm the crowd was roaring okay the Cubs were starting to kind of walk out there and you know uh, high five fans and you know wave to the ones in the bleachers that is the loudest I've ever heard a stadium and I've been inside the Chicago Stadium, which was ear-splitting, the United Center, and these venues. I had never been on the field to hear a cheering crowd. And it stopped me in my tracks. Completely stopped. I didn't, I didn't move for about a minute going, oh, my gosh, it's much louder out here than it is upstairs in the press box. It's much louder. I was stunned by that. I was overwhelmed by what that is now like for a player to hear that it's really, really loud. Um, so I'll always, I'll always remember those particular events, you know, and, and obviously covering Jordan for, you know, those years was just extraordinary. That's you just, you can't, you can't buy that one. And yeah, being, being with the Hawks uh, in Philadelphia and then being with them when they won their first cup at home, since 1938, I think, when that was at the stadium against, the, rather the United Center against Tampa, on that rain, on that rain-filled night when it took them an extra hour to get the cup to the United Center, it was delayed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, Remember that? I that's do. The craziest thing I'd ever seen. The, the, the post-game ceremony is delayed because the cup's not in the building. What was the reason for that again? I, I remember because it was Game Six. Okay. And if if necessary, they would have to go back to the airport. To, to, to go back to Tampa. The problem was they were en route, but the storm was so bad that it made them late. So they were en route on a normal night. The, 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 the cup would have been in the building between the second and third period, easily. But because it was such a bad night and traffic was so bad that it took an extra 50, you know, it's like 15 minutes later, we're all waiting for the damn cup to show up, you know? <laughs> I, you know I'll never forget that. That was uh, so. 
That was a memorable night. I, I, before we go here, George, because you just teed up something I didn't know, and I, I'm, I'm thinking that people are listening to this might be interested. Your parents fleed Europe. Were they avoiding World War II? I mean, what do we? Can no, you... it was just right afterwards. Okay. So this is the. I mean, they did. They did flee. Uh, they were never in Nazi Germany, but they were in Poland and Russia. Um, actually, they they were in Germany um, after the fact. So it's like like 19. 48, okay. which I believe is when my other brother was born in Germany. So, yeah, they were fleeing the war. They came to this country in 1951 with two kids and no money um, and uh, managed to make a life and add a third kid, which was unexpected, yours truly. So um, there were the struggles that a lot of immigrants from war-torn Europe had, but we we managed, and I had a hell of a childhood, which included my my broadcast career, <laughs> which which literally began uh, there in North Park College, which doesn't look like it does today. You know, it, it had a couple of couple of buildings and a and a dorm, and we would play baseball there, and I was the I was the announcer then, so. You know, it's it's a it's a really nice uh, memory that I have of growing up. Yeah, sounds like they were really fortunate to avoid the war, man. Yep. I mean, yep. Some some didn't. Um, I don't have any uh, grandparents because they were wiped out in the war, uh, so I didn't grow up with uh, with grandparents. Uh, but and that's you know tragic in its own right. But uh, we we uh, we I grew up with their with my parents' friends, they were all immigrants, you know, and so that's the way we grew up as kids. You know, they had kids, and so we would get together and all of that, but um, still uh, a very, you know, very important, beneficial uh, childhood. George Offman, you're awesome. Thank you for doing this. And again, My pleasure, Carm. Anytime. Yeah, yes, and I maybe you'll be... I don't know, dipping your toe into the podcast water. So if you do, I'll be looking. I'll be looking forward to, to listening. But uh, continued success to you, Georgie. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Reminder to all of us, hey, when you get knocked down, you just got to get back up. Not how many times in life you get knocked down. It's how quickly you get backed up. So anybody who's dealing with a job loss during this time frame, I'm rooting for you. Get back out there and reminding myself, too, at the same time. Hey, man, when you get knocked down, get back on up and get after it. Because you never know what is coming around the next bend here. Maybe the best thing that's ever happened is the next thing that's going to happen to you. Had fun singing, by the way. Ain't nothing going to break my stride in the Carm Commute, which I put up on Instagram over the weekend. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks to Aaron Judge. Thanks to George Hoffman for the extended conversation. Thank you for listening, subscribing, downloading, telling a friend is greatly helpful. So thank you. Uh, if you're doing that as well. We will see you next week.